0: I wonder today if you would engage your mind, your imagination. Let me paint for you a hypothetical picture. uh, Just kind of imagine this. In a culture, in a setting, in a reality, in a city, that is actually really quite prosperous as a city. And quite populous. A lot of people. And and, and very progressive. Very open to new ideas and and advancements in technology. All these things. And in the midst of this culture that is very... um, quite prosperous. There, there's a kind of a prevailing worldview that would be, I don't know, maybe deemed secular or even pagan could be. Uh, and yet there's an openness. There's an openness to spirituality. There's an openness to religion. In fact, it's very much a, a pluralistic coexist kind of society, whatever. That nothing's wrong. If, if it works for you, it's all good. But in this society or in this culture, there seems to be a, a, a broad sweeping disregard of for God and his word and specifically the morals that he would put out in his word and even more so with regards to sexual immorality and, and in this culture there's an exploitation of women and the sanctity of human life is kind of take it or leave it and in this culture while there's all these things that are happening there are there are things that cause disagreements uh, and which leads to some division and some harsh words and some slander even that might even uh, erupt into a protest or violence or even a riot. And there's this, this great disparity between the wealthy and the poor, the powerful and the weak. And in this hypothetical culture, this setting, the government has incredible amounts of control over this society. Hard to imagine, isn't it? That in this hypothetical situation, while it's not a God-forsaken situation, the people have forsaken God. And it seems as if this whole culture is on the highway to hell, albeit in a handbasket. It's going there. And there's some followers of Jesus who could be tempted to be afraid, to be discouraged, to fall into despair and hopelessness. It's not a hypothetical situation. It's not a hypothetical culture. It's not a hypothetical city. It's a reality that we're going to look at today. And it was in that culture that I just described to you, in that setting, in that reality, where God birthed the church, and the church in that setting was unleashed, unhindered, and unstoppable. It's not that they were not oppressed or opposed. They were. But even in the oppression and in the opposition, and all the things happening in the reality, the church was unleashed, unhindered, and unstoppable. It's the story, the history of the church, his story of the church that started 2,000 years ago that we've been looking at this week, this, uh, this summer, in our study on the book of Acts. Now, if you've been with us throughout this series, you know that early on in June, I spent four weeks, and we never got out of the first two chapters of Acts. And it looked like it was gonna take us years to get through. And then we cranked up the speed. And then in the next seven weeks, we covered chapters 3 through chapters 15. Today, we go into to warp drive, hyperspeed. Today, in our time together, I'm going to cover the remainder of chapter 15, all of 16, 17, 18, and we're going to finally land and study 19. Are you ready? Okay, because I'm going to need you because we're going to have to be going here. Hopefully, some of you have read this in preparation. I'm going to give you kind of the Bob's Cliff's Notes version of most of it. Uh, starting at the end of chapter 15, if you've been with us the last couple weeks, you know, two weeks ago we looked at Paul's first missionary journey, and then after that, when, when he and Barnabas come back to Antioch, there's this incredible thing of the, you know, the, tribals, the the Gentiles are becoming followers. They go to Jerusalem for the council. That's where we left off. Now, in order for us to kind of zoom through the next few chapters, we have to go back to the map. I'm the map, I'm the map, I'm the map, I'm the map. Here we go, the map. You remember, they were in Jerusalem, and they go back up to Antioch. Paul is preparing to go on his second missionary journey. There's a little bit of a tension between, there's an enormous impasse between he and Barnabas. Barnabas says, yeah, let's go. Let's get John Mark, my cousin, with us. Paul's saying he deserted us, not a chance. It came to the point where they said, we're not gonna travel together anymore. Barnabas says, that's fine. I still think John Mark has potential. He brings his cousin, they go out to Cyprus, which is where Barnabas is from. Paul picks up a new traveling companion. You remember when, if you were here last week, the letter was sent back to Antioch and some representatives went with it. One of them was a guy named Silas. Paul says, Silas, why don't you come with me? You've got the authority of Jerusalem. You've got a heart for this. Let's go together. And off they embark on Paul's second missionary journey. They go this, instead of across this way, up over the the, the, uh, Taurus uh, mountains, probably back to Tarsus where Paul was from. And then they start backtracking through some of the places where they have already been, where churches were planted, where there are new followers. And Paul just encourages the followers. He teaches them. He sees how the elders are doing that in their leadership of these churches. When they get to Lystra, uh, which is where Paul had been stoned, if you remember that story, he sees that some of the people in the church are doing really well. There's a woman named Lois, and she's solid in her faith. And her daughter, Eunice, is doing really well in her faith. And Eunice's son, Lois's grandson, Eunice's son has become a follower of Jesus and has embraced it and, and, and knows the word and, and appears to have incredible leadership potential. And what Paul probably thought John Mark would be, that's one he would pour into, he sees the potential in this young man named Timothy. And so Timothy joins them in this journey And Timothy is the one that Paul will just pour his life into and eventually will set him up as a bishop over a church that we'll get to. So they travel. So now you have Paul and Silas and Timothy. Eventually they end up in Troas. Interesting thing happens in Troas, apparently. Here's a little quiz for those of you who've been with us all summer. Who wrote the book of Acts? Okay, so we've promptly gone to sleep. Luke, all right, remember Luke was not Jewish, he was, he was a Gentile, he wrote the, the gospel of Luke, he investigated all these things, he didn't live there with Jesus, he investigated those things, and he investigates and writes the book of Acts. Interesting thing happens in Acts chapter 16. Up to this point, Luke is commenting, talking about the things that have happened, and he says, they did this, they did this, they went here, they this, they that. In Acts chapter 16, verse 10, something changes he says, and we went. Apparently, this is where Luke joins the journey, on Paul's second missionary journey. And and Paul gets this this vision, this dream of a man from Macedonia saying, come, preach the gospel to us. So they go to Philippi. In Philippi, they come in. Philippi doesn't apparently have enough Jewish men to have a synagogue. You had to have 10 Jewish men. But there were some God-fearing Jewish women who would go down to the river to pray at the times of prayer. Paul and and, uh, Silas and Timothy and Luke, they join them, begin praying. There's a woman there named Lydia, a prominent businesswoman who sells purple, and she becomes a follower. First convert in Europe is this woman, Lydia. There's another gal, younger gal, and she's, um, she's a servant. She's a servant. There are some men that own her, and she's a servant, and she's an enslaved to a demonic force that allows her to interpret the future. And so these guys are making a lot of money on it. Finally, Paul just casts that demon out. They lose their business, everyone's upset. Paul and Silas get arrested and they get severely beaten and put into the inner, inner circle, inner sanctum of the prison, which is not just like the nicest place. It's the deepest, darkest, coldest, smelliest spot in the prison, and they're put in stocks. Stocks were not just for the case of, of security. Stocks were also a bit of a torture device. The way your body was contorted with stocks, it was very painful, a lot of cramping. So here they are, Paul and Silas, in the prison, and their backs are welted and bloody and from the severe beating. They're in these cramped positions in the stocks, can't sleep, So about midnight, they say, well, we can't sleep. We might as well utilize our time somehow. Instead of whining and complaining and moaning and and grousing about it, they have an old-fashioned hymn singing prayer meeting. And they're down in the middle of the prison at midnight singing hymns. And then they go from Rock of Ages to Jailhouse Rock because there's an earthquake and everything opens up. The flipping jailer wants to kill himself because he's going to die anyway. They say, stop, we're all here. He gets converted that night. He and his whole family get baptized. All right, the next day, The leaders of the city in Philippi say, Would you guys please leave? There's some other issues, uh, but you can read that on your own. Later, Paul will write to this church in a letter that's in our New Testament. It's called the Book of Philippians. Philippians. All right, so that's where that comes from. So they leave, they leave, and they go down to Thessalonica. It says in Thessalonica, Paul goes to the synagogue, which is his normal course. He goes there for three Sabbaths, three weeks. And there are people that are hearing the message and there are people that are understanding Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and Jews are following him and God-fearing Greeks are following him and many prominent women and men of, of, the, of the community are following Christ now. Some of the Jewish people are not very happy about this. So they, they roused up some ruffians, some thugs, some, some people that aren't even a part of the synagogue to kind of make a, a problem for Paul and, and his company here. And so there's a, a riot that takes place in Thessalonica. Uh, and later he will write this church a couple of letters called First and Second Thessalonians. That's where that comes from. So he heads down to Berea. Berea is not a town that he probably normally would have gone to. He likes the bigger metropolitan areas because it has bigger influence in the surrounding. Berea is a smaller town, but what it says about Berea is that the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians because they received the message with eagerness and they examined the Scripture every day to see if what Paul said was true. And for two thousand years. People have called themselves "We're Bereans." We're Bereans. They're probably going, "What do you? Okay, we just studied the Word of God." So, while things are great, things are happening in Berea. Some of these Jewish people from Thessalonica find out Paul is down there. So they take the thugs, send them down to create another riot. They're going to kill him. Paul heads down to Athens. Now we're in the heart of Greece. Athens. We're all philosophy. You know, that's that's like the heart of philosophy. That's where Socrates was from. That's where Plato was from. That was the adopted city of Aristotle and Epicurus. And Paul walks in and he goes to the synagogue, as is his custom, to explain how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. But he notices in Athens that there are these altars and monuments to all these foreign gods. And it really bothers him. And he begins to discuss not just in the synagogue, but in the streets. And he gets into discussions with these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And they take him and say, we want to hear. Some are going, oh, we don't even have a clue what he's talking about. And they say, We want to hear more about it. And so they take him to a place called the Areopagus, which is on a little hill called Mars Hill. We were there in 2008. I've got a picture of that. We're here uh, representing the Vikes, of course. We're here on on Mars Hill, and uh, this is where Paul was. And so I'm no doubt reading out of Acts uh, here and what's going on there. What's amazing is as he's in the Areopagus, he says to these guys, he doesn't say, you know, you guys ought to go away. He says, I see you're very, very religious. He, he meets them on their own level. He says, I see you're very, very religious. He says, and I noticed there's altars to all these gods. In fact, they had an altar to the unknown God. This is what I think this is like. You don't have to raise your hand. Some of you every December keep a wrapped gift in your closet just in case someone shows up and you didn't think about it and you're like, oh, yeah, we've got your gift for it. You know what I'm talking about. Don't have to point, but it's those, you know, that, those uh, cherry cordials. And you say, we've got this for you. And you had it just in case. They've got an altar to an unknown God, just in case one of these gods shows up and says, where's my altar? Oh yeah, yeah, it's here. And Paul says, hey, let me tell you about the unknown God. And he begins to talk about this God who created all things. What's interesting is that the Areopagus in Mars Hill is right in the, in the shadow of, of uh, the Parthenon. The Parthenon is this massive temple to their goddess and their patroness, uh, Athena. Athens comes from that, Athena. It's right in the shadows of this huge temple. And he says to them, the God who created the heavens and earth does not live in temples made by hands. And then he does something that's crazy. He quotes lyrics. All we are is dust in the wind, dude. Not those lyrics, but some other lyrics. And he does it. Now, with that, there's a guy named Dionysius who's a part of the Areopagus. He becomes a follower of Jesus, some other people do. Not a massive following of Jesus. We don't know that any church was ever planted there. But then he goes to Corinth, back to the map. Heads to Corinth. In Corinth, he meets this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. They were in Rome, but in the year 49, Claudius expelled all the Jewish people from Rome. They come to Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila. They make tents as an occupation. They connect with Paul. They make probably great tents. Tents out of fabric. Tents out of canvas. And to quote Ricardo Montalban, out of rich Corinthian leather. All right, that's from way back in the 70s. But So he meets these people, Aquila and Priscilla. And Paul spends a year and a half in Corinth. Spends a long time in Corinth, and he establishes the church. He will later write to them four different letters. We have two of them in the Bible, First and 2 Corinthians. He writes four letters to them at least. And he establishes this church, and Corinth needs a lot of help. I mean, Corinth has a lot of issues. So then he's ready to head back home. On the way, they stop in Ephesus. He takes Pr- Priscilla and Aquila with him. They go over, and he leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus and he teaches a little bit. And they say, stay, Paul, stay, Paul. He says, no, no, no. And then he quotes Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he says, I'll be back. And then they quote from Hamilton, you'll be back. And he goes, if it's God's will. So he goes back over to Caesarea. Meanwhile, a guy named Apollos from Alexandria comes up to Ephesus. The guy is articulate, amazing. He and a Priscilla and Aquila take over there. All right. Paul goes down to Jerusalem, heads back to Antioch. Thus ends the second missionary journey. And now we're at the end of chapter 18. <sighs> Okay. All right. Now. now, time passes, and we get ready to go on Paul's third missionary journey. Now, I'm not going to throw up another map for that because we're not going to go all the way through all that, and a lot of it is repeat. But in this, he ends up uh, going back to Ephesus. In Acts chapter 19, verse 1, we read this. When Apollos was at Corinth, Apollos was from Alexandria, went to Ephesus, went over to Corinth. Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. Let me just paint the picture a little more uh, detail about Ephesus, and then we'll get started with the sermon. (laughs) Okay. Ephesus was a very, very important city. It was the fourth largest city in the entire Roman Empire. It was a very key city. It was a, a port city. It was a gateway city with a lot of commerce, a lot of people coming and going, a lot of roads led out of Ephesus. Very important city. It becomes a very, very important city in the early church. Of course, Jerusalem is kind of like, you know, that's, that's home. Antioch was a very important uh, church because they were the sending church. Ephesus becomes number three and then later Rome. But Ephesus becomes a very, very important city and you'll see why. A very strategic city for the church in that first century. It was a Roman city, and it experienced the Pax Romana. That's the peace of Rome. But this is where, in my hypothetical early on, I said that the government has a lot of control. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was a fear-based peace. Yes, there was peace, but it was like a Cold War. You get out of line, and you're going to be in trouble, all right? And, and so there was this fear, but there, there was this peace. And as a gate city, as a gateway city, as a port city, there were a lot of commerce, a lot of money that came in and, and, and stuff from, from inland out to the sea and from sea coming in and all this, this trade that takes place. Very cosmopolitan city. People from different cultures, from the west, from the east, from all around would come there and a lot of that. Very cultured city. And in fact, in Ephesus, uh, the ruins of the library. This was the third largest library in the entire Roman Empire. It had over 12,000 scrolls. Very much a learned place, a place of, of culture, and uh, as, as a Roman city, a place of entertainment as well. Uh, one of the, the, uh, the distinguishing factors of Ephesus was its theater. The theater was cut right into the wall. This is all cut right into the, in the mountain. If you've ever been to like uh, the Gorge, you know how that's just uh, the Gorge Amphitheater, um, ask your kids about it. Okay, it's cut right into, it's, it's like right, it's just built into the natural landscape. This theater in Ephesus was carved right into the mountain, right out of the rock, and it was enormous. I mean, it would seat 24,000 people. 24,000 people. Just put that in perspective. Climate Pledge Arena, which most of you know of as Key Arena, seats 17,500. The Tacoma Dome, in its capacity, seats 23,000. The theater in Ephesus seats more than the Tacoma Dome. And they would have plays and they would have concerts and they would have games and all these performances that happened there. And because it was such a commercial city, there was a major banking center that took place. And the crazy thing is while they had all this banking center, there was also a spot that was like an asylum, like a sanctuary for debtors. If you owed a debt that you couldn't pay and you were gonna be sold into slavery for it, if you could get to this place, you were safe. And also, if you were uh, guilty of some crimes from other areas, you could get there and you were safe. So they had some unsavory characters there as well. So you have all of this this uh, money going on, and then there was a really, really dark underside of Ephesus. They were very much into the occult, very much into black magic, sorcery, superstition, and people would come from all around to buy potions and incantations and mantras and charms that were written and put in these little things called an amulet that they would wear around their neck. You could buy curses that you could go and bury in your enemy's field. A lot of dark, a lot of spiritual darkness, a lot of sorcery, a lot of of this um, very black magic darkness. And it was very open to spiritual religious things. There were over 50 different gods and goddesses that had temples and were worshiped in Ephesus. But all of them paled in comparison to one. All of them took a back seat compared to the goddess, the great goddess, Artemis. And apparently, somewhere in history, most believe that a meteor fell from the sky and landed in Ephesus, this big black rock that had this shape that kind of looked like, and they said, this is our goddess, Artemis. And they built this temple to Artemis. Now I showed you the picture of the Parthenon in in Athens. It's it's very, very large. But the temple to Artemis in Ephesus was four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. It was 425 feet long, like a football field and a half, 220 feet wide, and and it had 127 of these columns, each of them 60, 60 feet high. The temple to Artemis was seen as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, right up there with the pyramids. And people would come just to see the temple, even if they didn't worship Artemis. But Artemis, Artemis was this goddess of fertility. And if you wanted to have fertile crops, if you wanted to have fertility in your flocks, if you wanted to have fertility in your family, you would would worship Artemis. And, And the statues of Artemis reflect this in a Freudian kind of a way, this this goddess of fertility. Her legs are like that of a a mermaid, and she's covered with multiple breasts of this fertility. And in this temple, this wonder of the ancient world, it employed hundreds and hundreds of cultic prostitutes to engage in practices of worship to Artemis, uh, uh, Artemis, in this temple. Very, very immoral setting. Very, very uh, dark setting. So when you have all this spiritual darkness and this, this um, plurality of religions and the immorality, you think, why on earth would God ever choose to use a place like that? Shakespeare, uh, in, his, um, in one of his writings, talks about Ephesus. This is what he said. They say this town, he's talking about Ephesus, is full of cousinage, this trickery, as nimble jugglers that deceive the eye, dark working sorcerers that change the mind, soul-killing witches that deform the body, disguised cheaters, prating Montevans, these these charlatans, these hucksters, and many such like liberties of sin. Very, very dark place, the most unlikely place, where you say, let's go plant a church there. And yet we find the wisdom of God looks like foolishness to man and what we find is that Ephesus is a light in the darkness what better place to have the church of Jesus Christ than in such a depraved dark sinful hedonistic ungodly place now I can get way ahead of myself Paul spends three years in Ephesus he spends more time in Ephesus than he does in any of the other Gentile cities and ten years after that He writes them a letter. He knows the circumstances. He knows the situation. He was there. He writes them a letter, the book of Ephesians. And he comes back to this theme of light in the darkness. Ephesians chapter 5, he writes, For you were once darkness. Not you were once in the darkness. He said, no, you were dark. You're dark, people. I mean, you know what you were involved in. But now you are light in the Lord. It's not that you just kind of did about face. The Lord made a difference, turned you from darkness to light. Live then as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Your whole community, your whole culture is, is, is saturated in, in, in evil and unrighteousness and lies. You're not that way anymore. And I love this verse 10, and find out what pleases the Lord. That, that's a great verse to just hold on to. Find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them this is ephesus now are you ready to start the sermon yeah oh <laughs> yeah. one year everyone said no we're done all right well tough um you can leave i suppose you can click off I, i'm glad that you're here anyway so that's what we're dealing with so he goes paul goes to to ephesus and uh and he's building on the teaching of Apollos. Apollos has been there for years now. He's building on the teaching that pa- Apollos has done of Priscilla and Aquila. He meets these 12 guys. They know Jesus, but they don't, haven't received the Holy Spirit. He can, uh, b- brings them in as his disciples. Then we pick up in verse 8, chapter 19, verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months. Remember in Thessalonica, he only got three weeks. At least these guys give him a few months. Three months arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years. So starts off, got three, three months in the synagogue. They say, well, we don't want you here anymore. He says, fine, I'll, I'll take my disciples and I'll go. And he does, and he finds this hall uh, from Tyrannus. Uh, his friends call him T-Rex, tiny little arms. We don't know anything about Tyrannus. He may have been a philosopher. He may have just been a landowner. He may have been one of the converts, that the whole name Tyrannus. It's the root of tyrant or tirade. It's probably a nickname, and it probably reflects at least his past of how he responded. And so Paul meets in this lecture hall, rented lecture hall, every single day for two years. And it's not just with these 12 guys, maybe Apollo, uh, Aquila, and Priscilla. But remember, Ephesus has this steady stream of of travelers, of merchants, of of tourists, of people coming in, and people are hearing about this lecture of this short guy, bald hair, unibrow, hooked nose, crooked legs, over there in this rented hall. And every day if you wanna hear what he's got to say, you can go over there and listen to him, and people do. And they hear it, and they take it, and they take it with them back to their homes. So much so that it says, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. This is a strategic city. There are so many people coming and going through Ephesus. If they can hear the word of Jesus and take them with them, this is amazing. This just spreads it, and this is what happens. And God, in his wisdom, knows that in a culture that is so super, uh, so saturated with the supernatural, the the counterfeits, the, the, the black magic, the sorcery, all of these incantations, God brings a validation to the message of Jesus with the power of the Holy Spirit, and people are being healed. And not only that, but people are hearing about people being healed. And it's pretty amazing. You read it for yourself. Uh, We don't have time to go into all the details of that. But people begin to understand, man, we've got all these potions and these little formulas and these abracadabra things, but something happened. This Paul guy, he talks about Jesus and things happen. I mean, in a big way. So people start like, maybe we can get in on this. Because they're all hucksters and magicians, magicians anyway. They're these brothers. The Seven Sons of Skeva. Sounds like an indie rock band. The seven sons of Skeva. They're kind of these, you know, these magicians, and they do all this, and they hear about this and they decide: let's drop some names. Let's give our let's give this a whirl. So they find a guy who's filled with a demon and they're gonna exercise him. And they say to him, In the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, come out. I don't normally quote demons, but this is so beautiful. This is the best. If you ever wanna quote a demon, this is the one to quote. It says this, one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? <laughs> now, it's a demon, so I think there's a whole bunch of expletives that are left out here. Because the demon's not gonna say, and who might you be? No, no, I know who Jesus is, believe me, I'm in the, I'm in the spirit realm. And I've heard about this Paul guy, I don't know about you guys, the man, the demon possessed man, Who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all he gave them such a beating they ran out of the house naked and bleeding i mean it's seven on one and this guy just waylays them not only that rips their clothes off they go out they're bleeding they're naked this is a story i never heard in sunday school this never came up on the flannel graph board we never got to color this picture (laughs) had to be pixelated part of it anyway See, I never heard about that growing up in Sunday school, and probably wisely that they let me grow up first. But it was heard about in Ephesus. A lot of people heard about that. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. They had seen all the counterfeits. They had purchased the counterfeits. They had engaged in the counterfeits. But this Lord Jesus, he's the real deal. There's something different here. This one isn't counterfeit. And there's a respect, there's an awe, there's a fear about this. The Lord Jesus, the name above. You know, we sing that song, what a beautiful name it is. What a wonderful name it is. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus. You don't use Jesus like some incantation. You don't try abracadabra, hocus pocus, open sesame, nah, I better pull out the big guns. You don't use the name of Jesus that way. What's, Paul writes later to that church in Philippi, and talks about how god exalted christ to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father he is lord listen i i want us to stop because though we would never be so crass as to say this sometimes we treat jesus as if he's a genie not the lord sometimes and i'm talking about me as well sometimes in my prayer I pray for my will to be done. Come, sir, my wish should be your command. I just rub the little lamp like the genie Jesus comes out, and here he is to grant me three wishes. No, no, he is the Lord. He doesn't work for my will, for my kingdom, for my purposes. He's the Lord. That's why we worship him. That's why we surrender and submit to him. That's why we follow and obey him, because he's the Lord. And they began to understand this. This isn't just another one of these gods or goddesses. This is the Lord, and it changed their lives. It says this, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. They said, we, we got to get serious on this thing. And it goes on, some of them that were involved in all the dark, you know, sorcery and all that, they brought all their equipment, all their books, all their stuff, and they burned them, and it was worth unbelievable amounts of money. And word of this starts Spreading. And people find out about this as well. In this way, the word of the Lord spread and widely, uh, widely and grew in power. You know, from Ephesus, it just kind of went out and, and the seven churches of Revelation, Pergamum and Laodicea and Philadelphia, all, all these churches are probably planted out of this movement that's happening in Ephesus. Everything's great then, right? People's lives are being changed. The kingdom of God is expanding. Paul's lecturing every day. It's an amazing thing. Not all is great. Verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Not a skirmish, A great disturbance about the way. Now remember, the whole term Christian, it started back in Antioch, but it hasn't really caught on yet. They're not using that term. They're still using this term, followers of the way, because Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I, I am the life. So the followers of the way, and I love, in a culture where there's 50 gods and goddesses, where there's this this plurality of anything happens, it's not the followers of a way, not the followers of one way, not the followers of another way. The way. The one and only amongst the multitude. But I don't think it was that message of the exclusivity that caused the great disturbance. I think it was more practical. I think it was the way of living. It wasn't just what they believed, but how they lived. What they did with what they believed, what they did with following this one named Jesus, how they lived. That their lives, they lived in such a way that it caused some attention that actually became quite negative. And so there's this great disturbance. All right, let's look at this great disturbance. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. In other words, he's the rainmaker. He's the sugar daddy. He's the one that's got the connections. A lot of people make their livelihood because of Demetrius. He's got a lot of influence. He's got a, a lot of power over these guys because they're like, man, he's the one that got me started. He's the one. And he said, he called them all together along with the workmen in related trades. You've got all these people that work around Artemis and all this. And he said, men, you know, we receive a good income from this business. That's a modest way of saying, guys, we've gotten rich selling these things. You know it. This is our livelihood. They're all listening. They say, yeah, absolutely. No one's disagreeing with him. And you see in here how this fellow Paul, the little guy, He's convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. Like they learn it here and then they go home and then they tell others about it. And, it, and notice that he says, he's led astray. This is when you know a culture is really in trouble. When what is right is seen as wrong and what is wrong is seen as right. When it's a negative thing, when someone leads someone astray from immorality and, and, uh, and idolatry, that that's seen as a bad thing. He says, This guy, Paul, he's leading people astray, not just in our town, but the whole region. You know what that means? That means everything is down and to the right on the charts right now. Tourism is down. Attendance at the temple is down. Buying our artifacts that made us rich is down. They don't buy our stuff and they don't even buy our religion anymore. And, and if that's not enough, he says that man-made gods are no gods at all. The audacity of him. Well, and they're probably going, what's he, we made this by ourselves, this handmade God. Yeah, exactly, that's the point he's saying. And he's telling people they're not gods, that they're little figurines, they're little action figures, they're little cabbage patch dolls, that, that they have no power. Get them all riled up. There's danger that not only our trade will lose its good name. You know what that means? Let me just, let me just kind of interpret this into English for us. It says, guys, if this doesn't, doesn't stop, let me just remind you. You ever remember a store called Good Guys? Did you ever go to Woolworths when you were a kid? Did you ever visit Blockbuster? <laughs> Fellas, if something doesn't happen, we're going to go the way of the dodo. We're gonna be just like all the rest of them. We'll lose our good name. But also, that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. If that temple, the wonder of the ancient world, if that's discredited, all the people who travel from all over Asia and beyond that come here, the tourists that make us a good living, they're not gonna come anymore. It's just a big pile of rocks. And the goddess herself, who is worshiped throughout the province of Asia and the world, this is Artemis, will be robbed of her divine majesty. I love that line. Can I just say, if you have set anything as the foundation of your life, anything as the goal, as the priority, of what you worship, what you're going after, if it can be robbed of its majesty by any circumstance, any person, or any situation, might I suggest you have set your sights way too low. If a goddess can be robbed of her majesty, she's not much of a goddess. I love that we serve a God. We sang about this today. It's majestic, and no one and no thing and no force in all of the world, in the spiritual realm, in the physical realm, can rob God of his majesty. People are all riled up, all these artisans are all riled up about this, and and you know what's interesting? A little side note, here we are 2,000 years later, Ephesus doesn't really exist. I mean, yeah, it's a place for tourists and archeologists. The temple, which was one of the wonders of the world, doesn't even exist. It's not even, it's not even like the one in, in, in Athens. And when's the last time you read it, ran into someone who says, I'm a devout follower of Artemis. She's been robbed because she was a fake the whole time. See, it was the way they lived, and the changed lives changed the culture. It, it, it was, it was the, that it wasn't just a new belief it was how they lived with this, how they were light in the darkness, how, how they did away with the, the, evil things, and how they were pursuing, and it was about Jesus. So he's got them all fired up, and he goes on. When they heard this, all these artisans, all these uh, workers, they were furious and began shouting, "Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great!" Is... And soon the whole city was in an uproar. Ephesus had somewhere between two hundred fifty to four hundred thousand people that live in it. it's a big city. And there's this big thing, and people go, what's going on, I don't know, let's go see. And people just rush, and it just becomes this mob mentality. where people are protesting, they don't even know what they're yelling about. They're all yelling different things. Half not them going, we're not sure, we're just we're just going. This, this is fun, and it becomes a riot, and they all go to the theater. How many were there, we don't know, but we do know that the theater holds 24,000 people. And they're in the theater, and for two solid hours, there's this half, worship service, half-riot protest. You know, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. They're just chanting it. Paul, Paul says, hey, let me go talk to him. They're like, no! Idiot, no! That would not be good. Another guy, we won't have time to go, and gets thrown in there. He's like, I don't want Anyway, finally, the town clerk says, i, I got to get this thing under control because he knows if he doesn't, Rome's thumb will come down on him and all of Ephesus. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis? And of her image, which fell from heaven. That's why most commentaries, uh, com, uh, commentators believe that it was a meteor. To me, I think of that movie from 1981, The Gods Must Be Crazy. <laughs> Any you remember that, the Coke bottle? Okay, never mind. I just, I thought that was kind of funny. All right. Like, guys, everyone knows this. And, and, and he says, it's a fact. He says, you don't need to be doing anything rash right now. And then he concludes for our time with this. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. What have they done? We have 50 temples. We have 50 gods and goddesses. They've never, ever robbed the temples. Artemis, they've never blasphemed her. Guys, What have they done? And what I love about this, and I I hope you hear me clearly on this, is that Paul and the followers of Jesus didn't take this defensive posture of, we got to get rid of all this negative stuff. They took an offensive posture. And what they were about and what they became known for was who they followed, not what they were against. They were all about Jesus. Let's bring the light into the darkness. Let's bring the way into all these others that are lost. Let's bring the real into the the world of the counterfeit. And, And hear me out on this. If we or the church put in what we're against ahead of who we follow, we've got things mixed up. I'm not saying that there are some things that we should go against. But when we're better known for what we're against than who we follow, we've missed the boat. It's about Jesus. And I want to tell you, when we bring Jesus and our lives are changed, it will change our culture. I want us to be about pointing people to Jesus, the light in the darkness, the way in the lost, the truth in the lies. I'm out of time, but I'm not out of material. (laughs) So I'm going to have to really talk fast now. Um, Okay, so 10 years later, 10 years later, Paul writes them a letter. And he knows the circumstance. He knows the situation. He he knows the culture. He knows the reality that they live in. And he knows that it could be a a fear-based city. It could be discouraging and filled with despair. It could feel hopeless. But look what he writes to them. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you have been called. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You look around and you focus on all that, you're gonna be hopeless. But don't you know the hope to which you've been called? This glorious inheritance. Yes, someday in the far and beyond, but here and now. And, and, in this world with all this stuff going on and his incomparably great power for Us who believe that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That you don't have to cower and be weak, you have the power of the resurrected Jesus, who was seated, who was seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, and it says, the right heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Let me tell you something. Nothing has changed. Jesus is still on his throne. He is still the authority. He is still sovereign. He is still king. He still wins. And when we as Christians live in fear and despair and hopelessness, we've got our eyes on the wrong thing. Their situation was way worse than anything we personally have ever experienced. And yet they had hope. Because of the power of the resurrection. And that Jesus Christ is the eternal king. May we live in that hope and that power and that confidence. Not in ourselves, but in Christ Jesus. It's to keep your focus. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. You know, in in 2 Corinthians he said, therefore we do not lose hope. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're, we're being renewed day by day. And then he says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Our hope is built on nothing less. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. Can I just say, church, for some of you, you're living in fear, and you're living in discouragement and despair, and you're living in in hopelessness. No, you focus your eyes on Jesus Christ. He is our rock. He is our victor. He is our hope. He is our power. We can live in his confidence. We are children of the light in this dark world. 30 years later, the church in Ephesus gets another letter. This letter's from Jesus. He says, guys, you've been good soldiers. You've, you've hung in there. you stayed in the fight. Something's lost. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. When you were first rescued out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light remember how you worshiped you remember the passion you had for christ you remember your hunger for the word of god you remember how you just continued to fill your mind with that truth and were transformed you've lost something along the way oh yeah you're still in there you're doing the stuff but go back to the way it was and i wonder maybe for some of us that maybe the reason we live with such hopelessness and despair is We need to do what we did at first. Holding on to the truth of God's words. Remembering his promises. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Worshiping him. Trusting in him. I'll throw this question out for you. And this is, oh please help me. This is in no way meant to be a guilt or, I just want, this will be an interesting question for you to discuss or to think about. What is the ratio in your life of how much time you spend watching the news and, and social media and how much time you spend in the truth of God's Word and worship and prayer. I'm not trying to guilt you. It, just, it would just be an interesting thing. What fills your mind more? I'm not saying stick your head in the sand. Hear me out. I'm not saying don't know about current events in the world affairs. I'm not saying that. But some of us spend so much time in all the bad news and all the stuff that we see on the internet and all the stuff we see on Facebook and all, it's all this stuff, and we never ever stop to think, hey, ha- when's the last time I prayed? When's the last time I focused on Jesus? When's the last time I worshiped? When I, when's the last time I memorized some scripture? And, and, and I'm not saying it ought to be this way or this, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, I wonder if some of us need to go back and do what we did at first. So I wanna challenge you, because I want you to live with hope and confidence. Power is every day. Every day, spend some time in God's Word. Every day, spend some time in worship. Every day, refocus your eyes on Jesus. And as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him. An amazing story a lot of similarities to our life we can live in hope and power because Jesus is the victorious king